Amen. Amen. Great worship, good words in those songs tonight. Love it. And it goes right along with what John is writing about in the book of Revelation. So if you turn to chapter 14, we're going to go back and pick up some things from chapter 13 that we didn't get to last week. But we want to start in chapter 14. In fact, I want to share with you, because chapter 15 is only eight verses, that actually next week, we're going to end in Revelation 14, 13 tonight. And we're going to pick it up in Revelation 14, 14 next week and go through the rest of Revelation 14 and then just the eight verses of Revelation 15. That way it'll sort of even balance it out because Revelation 15 is such a a short chapter. Tonight I want us to see a contrast. A contrast between... The stability, the security, the strength, the surety that we can have in God and the total lack of it for those who will reject God in their lives and put their faith in someone or something else. Obviously, in this context, the beast, the Antichrist. And to see just the lack of stability, the lack of surety, the lack of anything lasting. It it, it all deals with very temporal things. And we're going to see again the contrast between the temporal things that Satan holds out to try to, to get us to grab a hold of, and the eternal things that God wants us to really sink our teeth into. And we see this dynamic contrast here in chapters 13 and 14. And I want to begin here in chapter 14 by reminding us here in the first verse, John says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. A couple things. First of all, the word standing means he took his stand and he has begun to reign. And this is a verse, as it looks into the future, that reminds us about the fulfillment of prophecy. That through the Old Testament scriptures, there are many scriptures that talk about Jesus coming back to Zion. Zion representative of the earthly Jerusalem. And that one day he would rule and reign from Zion. And here again, Jesus is standing on Zion. But the other thing I want you to see is this. Notice the firmness though. Firmness there. Notice where Jesus is standing. He's standing on what? A rock. It reminds us of the words of Jesus. In Matthew 7 when he tells followers, he says, look, you got two choices. You can build your life on me and my sayings. And if you do that, you're going to be building on a rock. So that when the storms of life come, and they will come, there's stability and security in your life through me and my word. But if you choose not to believe in me or my words, you will be building your life on what? Sand. I want you to notice something in contrast to Jesus standing on the rock of Mount Zion. Go back to chapter 12. And look at the very last verse of chapter 12, or maybe, depending on your translation, the first verse of chapter 13. And notice where the dragon, who we know now is Satan, where's he standing? On what? 
sand. And it reminds us that all that the dragon offers is sinking sand. His foundation is that of sand. Jesus' foundation is that of a rock. And and it, it just is a great contrast because, again, everything that Satan is going to do through the tribulation period, everything that he's going to do to empower the beasts and, and all of that is, is all about just building on something that is sand. It is not lasting. There's no stability and security in it. And it's just the opposite of what we see the Lamb is offering to His followers. And so I want, again, with this being a book about worship, let's remember to, just as we've already sung about tonight, let's always be sure that we are worshiping God and thankful to God and grateful to God for the stability and the security and the surety that He gives us in our lives. That we've got something to build on. We've got that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and He is our rock. And God is our refuge and our rock. Even in the toughest times, He gives us that. And that's something, again, that we can always praise Him for. Now, we talked about last week in chapter 13 that we saw an introduction to these two beasts. One that came out of the sea and one that came out of the earth. And we really didn't get much to talking about the beast that came out of the earth, except I did share with you that what we see in chapter 13 of Revelation is the introduction to the counterfeit, unholy trinity. That just like there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit... In the book of Revelation, we see the dragon or the great serpent, Satan. Then we see the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. And then we were introduced to the beast out of the earth, who is also called the false prophet. And again, Satan can't do anything original. All he can do is counterfeit what God is already doing doing or has already done. And what we see in chapter 13 is that the false prophet's primary job, if you will, or purpose, is to cause the people of the earth to worship the beast. Notice in verse 12 of chapter 13 that the Bible tells us that this beast exercised all the ruling authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, on his behalf or in his place and made the earth and those who inhabit it worship the first beast. Because that's what it's all about. It's all about worship. Remember we said last week that God created human beings to be worshipers. And we will either worship the one true God or we will find ourselves worshiping someone or something else. And at this point in human history, what has now happened is because the inhabitants of the earth for the most part have forsaken the worship of the one true God, they find themselves worshiping a beast, a ferocious, savage animal that does not have their highest good at heart like God does and who is bent on their destruction, not their well-being. And so that's what is happening here. You'll notice that it goes beyond that. Not only is he going to cause the earth to worship the beast, but notice in verse 15 of chapter 13, the second beast was empowered to give life to the image, the likeness, the figure of the first beast. Somewhere along the line, an image is going to be made of the Antichrist. 
And so it's not enough now that the world is going to worship the Antichrist himself, that there's going to be this image or likeness of the Antichrist that people are going to be made to bow down to and worship as well. In fact, notice, the Bible says he was empowered to give life to the image of the beast. I think what we have here is something that is obviously very satanic and supernatural. And that somehow, maybe unlike anything that the devil has done throughout history up to this point, that that either a demon or a group of demons is going to make this image appear as if it's actually alive. Now again, remember, only God can give life to things. So that's not what's happening here. But it's made to appear as if it is alive, you see, which again fools and deceives the world. In fact, we see that that's exactly what happens when we read in verse 14 of chapter 13 that this first beast was empowered to perform on behalf of the beast all these supernatural miracles and signs and wonders so that he deceived those who lived on the earth. It's all about the sensational. And because it's supernatural, even though it doesn't come from God, the people of the earth will flock and they will follow. It reminds us today, even alive today, that we have to be careful as Christians, that we are not deceived. Just because something is supernatural doesn't mean it's coming from God. You see. And we can't get caught up in the miracles and signs and wonders... And just say, because it's a miracle or sign or wonder, it's got to be from God. Because that's exactly the tool that the Antichrist is going to use to deceive the world uh, when he comes on the scene. So we see what's happening here. And, And what is, in a sense, happening here is that the world is coming to worship what? A man. Let's remember who the Antichrist is. Yes, he's empowered by Satan but cut through all the the empowerment and all the miracles and stuff that he cannot do on his own, that he can only do through the help of Satan. And he's what? He's a man. And so, all that we see today, even in our lifetime, is laying the groundwork for the worship of the Antichrist. Why? Because we live in a world today where there is this growing you know, movement to basically worship man. That's what the the humanism is all about, that man, not God, man is the center of all things. And that man has the answers. And that man is the end-all, be-all. Not God, but man. And we are putting men and women up on pedestals, and we worship mere men and women today, and not God. We are doing exactly what Paul, we're going to see in a couple weeks as we go through the book of Romans, exactly what Paul indicted humans back in the book of Romans. He said, we are exchanging the worship of the glorious Creator And we are substituting and replacing our worship of the glorious Creator. And we're we're worshiping people. And we're worshiping idols. And we're worshiping animals. But we're not worshiping God. 
And this is going to continue to build until we get to this point where we see that basically the whole world is worshiping a man. Which brings me, because I don't want to spend too much time here tonight, but you'll notice also not only the sensationalistic, because that's what, that's what man's worship is all about today. It's all about the sensational. And that will be the Antichrist. He will be sensational. You want a show? He'll give you a show. But it's sand. There's nothing substantive about it. There's nothing that gives you stability and surety. And we see again that same thing today with the worship of people and and even in religion today and even in Christianity today. It's more about the sensational than the show than it is something substantive. And then we see something else about the worship that man is involved with. And that is there's always control involved. See, with God... Even though he's God, he, as we've talked about Sunday, he gives us free will and free choice, and we choose. He never forces us to do anything. But when men get involved, what do they want to do? They want to seek to control other human beings by their power and by their position. And that's exactly what we see happening here in the kingdom of the Antichrist when the Bible says in verse 16, He also caused everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to obtain a mark, an imprint, a stamp on their right hand or on their forehead. Thus no one was allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast. That is his name or his number. Controlling the economy and the the flow of commerce and material goods. Because it's all about control when man is involved. You see. And that's exactly what we see happening here. By the way, I don't know how many of you have heard about this. This company's been around for a couple years. They actually have changed their name. They used to be called Digital Angel. And then a couple years ago, they changed their name to Veritech. And they're the inventors of what's called a Vera chip, which is just a very tiny chip that is, you know, starting to be, it's already got a patent for it. The government has already approved it. It's this very little chip that can be embedded in any human being. And obviously the market of it is, it's all about security. It's all about making sure we know where everybody is and if somebody's kidnapped and, you know, if somebody's taken, a child is taken, we can track where... A plane goes down and, you know, we don't know where it's at. We'll be able to immediately find these people. But we know that when technology gets into the wrong hands, that can be used for great evil. And that's exactly what we see playing out here. Then I want to get to the mark, or excuse me, the, the number. Because that has caused a lot of, a lot of problems over the years. Notice in verse 18, the Bible even says, this calls for wisdom, keen interpretation and insight. Let the one who has insight, perception, discernment, calculate the beast's number, for it is man's number, and his number is 666. Now what has caused a lot of problems over the years, I think to me, is a misapplication of the word calculate here in the Greek language. It's why many people down through the centuries have even maybe well-meaning tried to come up with the personage of who the Antichrist is by adding up the letters 
in their name and, and having it equal 666. And we know that, that they've thrown out, you know, everyone down through history. Anyone who was bad, you know, well, that person's the Antichrist. Because if you add up that, I don't think that's what the word calculate here means. It, it, it means to observe. And I don't personally think that anyone is going to be able to observe, obviously, this number and how it connects to the identity of the Antichrist until he comes on the scene and he's alive and the image is alive and people are living at that. I don't think we're going to know at that point. But here's what I do think is very clear. In your translation of the Bible, there should not be an article before the word man's in the section of man's number. In other words, what John is clearly saying, I think, is this. He's telling us, I know that this guy seems like he can do anything. And we know why. He's empowered by Satan himself. We know that he and the false prophet are going to be able to do signs and miracles and wonders to be able to woo the world. And yet what John, I think, is saying is, if you observe the number that represents him, it is man's number. In other words, he is a mere man. He is less than God. Way less than God. And that's all he is at the end of the day. Take everything out of all the external show and sensationalism of what he does to deceive people on the earth and you get down to the very essence of who this Antichrist will be. He will simply be a man. And we come back to that point of what is Satan offering the world? Following a man. A man who's standing on sand. A man who can put on a show. A man who's sensationalistic. A man who can even do supernatural things through the power of Satan himself. But at the end of the day, there is no stability. There is no security. There is nothing of substance about this man. In fact, out of all the world leaders who have ever ruled the world, or at least the known world, this guy's only going to be on the scene for three and a half years. That's it. That's a pretty short-lived reign as the ruler of the world, you see. Very short. And he will be done away with by Jesus Christ in, in just a word. In fact, Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. He just shows up and the Antichrist fades into the background. Because again, what John is trying to get us to see in this book of worship is we have the opportunity, especially those of us who say, I know God. I have a relationship with God. I have a connection with God that we have the opportunity every day, every hour of the day, every minute of the day to worship the one true God, our creator, the great God that we just sang about, the good God that is revealed in the Bible and, and all of, of the wonderful attributes of God. And so 
We need to be inspired and motivated to continue to worship God and not get caught up in the worship of anyone or anything else because it's all less than God. Anything other than God is less than God. Which is why John writes in 1 John 5, 21, little children, meaning, you know, little born ones, my fellow Christians, keep yourself from idols. And an idol is anything that takes the place of God. God should be first. God should be preeminent in our lives. And so we all have that, you know, struggle of putting something in place of God in our lives and worshiping something or someone else other than God. This is exactly where the world went. So sad that they end up worshiping a mere man. Just a man you see. And that's where we go when we reject the worship of the true God. So with that being said, we jump into chapter 14 for just a few moments and we see the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Again, the contrast between the firmness, the stability, if you will, of the lamb himself and what he offers his followers and what the dragon offers who's standing on the sand. And notice, with him were these 144,000 who had his name, his father's name written on their foreheads. They didn't have the mark of the beast, but they certainly had an identity. And God knew that they were his, and they knew that they were his. And these were ones that we were introduced to back in chapter 7. And notice, who's with them? God's with them. And God's been with them through the whole dark tribulation. God gave them a tough assignment. Their assignment was to witness to him at the hardest time in history to be a Christian and and to to witness for God. I mean, we think it might be difficult today. It's going to be even way more difficult to witness for God during the tribulation. In fact, we know that most of the witnesses for God, even that we've been introduced to in the book of Revelation already, for God during the tribulation, get what? They get killed. The two witnesses that came down, they got killed. They got resurrected by God, but they got killed. These 144,000 martyred, you see. But notice, they're standing now with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And he then he says, I also heard a sound coming out of heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And now the sound I heard was like that made by harpists playing their harps. Harps are always associated in the Word of God, Old and New Testament, with offering praise and worship to God. I believe you and I will play harps one day. You might not play a musical instrument now, but you will when you get to glory. And you're going to sing your little hearts out. You might not like to sing now, but you're going to sing up there. Because notice in verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. They were praising God. Now notice this though. This is a very interesting side note. No one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The word learn there though I think is an unfortunate translation. It really means to appreciate, to value, to understand the worth of. In other words, what John is saying is, look, These 144,000 who have come through the tribulation, the things that they have seen, the things that they have been through, the words of whatever this praise song is, 
just has a special meaning to them based upon what they went through with God. Now, I want to translate that to you and I and make it real personal. Can I tell you that's why some songs and words of songs resonate with you more than other songs? Why? Because those songs and those words of those songs have special meaning to you. Probably because you went through something either during the time that that song was out and popular and it was on the radio or you heard it in church or whatever, or because what that writer of that song wrote down was what you always tried to express, but maybe you weren't quite able to express, and you, you have a special connection to that because of what you went through as well. And you get it. That's what's taking place here in worship. And we see that. That's going to happen in eternity. Where there's going to be some worship songs, I think, even in heaven, that some of us are going to, you know, just connect with more than others. Because it happens on earth. It happens in glory. These 144,000 so were able to value and appreciate this song more than anybody else because of what they went through and what the song represents. And then it says, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women. They're virgins. They're a special class. Why does God need a special class of witnesses during the tribulation? Because again, if, if he ever needed a group of followers to be committed, I mean sold out committed to him, it's during the tribulation period. But that reminds us, even in the days in which we live today, God needs people who are truly committed and devoted and consecrated. This wishy-washy, you know, type of, you know, Christianity, that's not going to be a clear-cut witness in the darkness. And in the darkness of the tribulation, God needs people who mean business and whose sole focus is on Him and nothing else. Which is why he goes on to describe them as those who follow the Lamb wherever He leads or goes. These were redeemed from humanity as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The first portion of a harvest consecrated to God. And he and no lie was found on their lips. That's significant because remember again when they're living? They're living during a time of unbelievable, unrivaled, unparalleled deception and falsehood. And so for them to be people of truth is huge in a world where is there any truth anymore? Any transparency? Yeah, God always has His witnesses. And they are blameless. It means they have nothing to hide. And God has used them to be great witnesses, to testify of Him, even during the darkest time of human history. How? First of all, because God is able. And second of all, because of their commitment to God. We see both here. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Finally, I want to show you these three angelic announcements that sort of form a, an interlude, again, a pause in what is taking place on the earth where it's setting up for us what is about to happen. And again, each of these takes us back to that contrast again between the stability 
and the security that is in God and that what is of God is eternal and what is of man and what is of Satan and what is of the beast is very insecure, unstable, and very temporal. Notice the first angelic announcement in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, meaning at the highest point in the sky, so that all could see. And he had what? An eternal, an everlasting, a without beginning or end gospel. What that means is, the message affects eternity. This message affects eternity. Because what God is involved with is something eternal. Don't get involved, God is saying, in the temporal. We're going to see that in a minute. The things of earth, the things of of Satan, the things that that the Antichrist tries to throw out there. Don't, Don't go after those things. They're temporary. They won't last. Oh, it may give you immediate relief. It may be what the world is all about today, which is just looking for the immediate rather than the long term. But God is saying through the everlasting gospel, focus on what is eternal. And there's three sort of main messages in his eternal gospel. Notice what they are. And he declared this to everyone on earth. He declared in a loud voice, first of all, fear God. Fear God. It means to reverence and respect God. That's where it all starts. Even the Old Testament says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Reverence and respect for God. Second, notice, give Him glory. This means to praise and honor Him. That's the second message within the eternal gospel. He reminds us because of that that the hour of His judgment has arrived. In other words, time is short. And then the final message is, worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. In other words, worship our Creator. Worship the Creator. And again, this is amazing how God lays these series that we do, because I could never do this. I could never figure this out. And how the, 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 the things coming up in the book of Romans we're going to look at on Sunday morning is going to lay right in line with what John is writing here in Revelation. That's the eternal gospel. And basically the angel is saying, look, time is short. His judgment, his final judgment, the conclusion of his judgment is about to come. So connect with eternal things. Realize that what is taking place, as horrific as it is on earth, is just very a temporary season. And don't get caught up in, in making it maybe easy for yourself for the short term to fall down and worship the beast. Better to die at the hands of the beast and have your whole eternity right than to take the quick fix to look for the immediate relief of, well, I will fall down and worship the beast and then let go of eternity. Remember what I've shared with you before. That for those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, anything bad that happens to us on this earth is the only hell we will ever know. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ, any good that comes out of their earthly existence is the only piece of heaven they will ever know. 
The angel is saying, think of eternity before you make these decisions and choices. And get involved in eternal things. And I love the fact that I can see God working in our church and in your lives. And I see, I see eternity being affected by you allowing God to do a, a work that's not just a work that's going to last for, for your lifetime, but a work that's going to last throughout eternity. Then second notice. A second angel followed the first. Verse 8, declaring, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. They were driven to madness through their idolatry and their worship of other gods rather than the true God. But I want you to go back and notice the fallen, fallen. In other words, the angel saying, this is if it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet, but Babylon will fall. I'll get to Babylon in a minute. I want us to understand that the things of the earth are going to fail and fall one day. They're going to come to an end. They're going to come to ruin. That's the way it is. It's on sand. It will not last. Why does John use the word Babylon here? Because Babylon, ever since the book of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, and all the way through the New Testament to the very last book of Revelation, has always stood for something. It has always stood for godless power and pride that opposes God. All the way back to Nimrod and to the Tower of Babel. It always has stood for idolatry. And Babylon, all the way back in the book of Genesis, was the source of idolatry. And God has basically said that any now godless power and pride against him finds its source in Babylon. You see here, Babylon stands for every city and no city at the same time. It's not literally a literal city. It is more representative of a system that is against God. A system that the Bible says is making all the nations drink of the wine. In other words, th this system is intoxicating and disorienting. That's what he speaks of when he says it's made to drink wine. It's very intoxicating. The worship of men and women putting ourselves up to be worshipped. Our pride is appealed to. We love that kind of power. And instead of worshiping and humbling ourselves and giving worship and honor and praise to God, we would rather take it for ourselves. You see, this kind of thinking and mindset and perspective goes all the way back to Babylon. All the way back to Babel. By the way, the word Babylon means confusion. Because that's exactly what the world system is all about. It's confusion. There's no clarity there. And there's no stability or surety there. It will fall one day. Because only what is built on God and His Word will last. He's the one standing on the rock. And everyone who stands with Him stands on that rock. Everything else is sinking sand. Verse 9. A third angel then followed with another announcement, declaring in a loud voice, if anyone does worship the beast, I think he's giving them a final warning. Look, because this message is going out to everyone on earth. Everyone is going to hear this message. And he's giving them one final warning. He's saying, look, if you bow down 
and you worship, do you realize you're giving up your eternity? Do you realize what you are doing? It would be just like today for a pastor to be pleading with people. If you don't accept Jesus Christ in your lifetime, do you realize that you're giving up eternity? You're giving up eternal life. You're giving up something that lasts for eternity. Do you realize what you're doing? And so notice the angel says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark on his forehead or his hand, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted. Full intensity. For the first time I believe in history. I believe that from the beginning of, of His creation, that any time God poured out His wrath, there was always some restraint, some holding back. This will be the one time in history where there's no holding back any longer. That's sobering to think about. Into the cup of His wrath. And they will be tormented or tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture or torment will go up. How long? Forever and ever. See, the angel's saying, do you realize what you're doing? You're giving up eternal life for this? For the worship of a mere... Wouldn't it be better to die as a martyr at His hands than to enter into this? Where you go out into an existence without God for all of eternity, where you are tormented. And notice, those who worship the beast, verse 11, and his image will have what? No rest, day or night, for all of eternity. Think of that, folks. No rest, day or night. Tormented every second of their existence. This even, even for us as Christians, this is pretty extreme. But notice the contrast. Verse 12, this requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments and hold to their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from this moment on. Can I say not just from this moment on, but blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, period. Paul even said in the book of 1 Thessalonians when he was speaking about the rapture, about the dead in Christ rising first. So a question we all need to ask ourselves is if we died... Would we die in the Lord? That is so important, folks. Because that, that answer to that question is something that has eternal significance. We either die in the Lord or we die apart from the Lord. There's only two ways to die. Every human being who's ever lived either dies in the Lord or apart from the Lord. But notice now this encouragement and this comfort to those who die in the Lord. And contrast it with what, with what we just read about those who worship the beast. 
Yes, says the Spirit, verse 13, so they can what? Rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. Uh, Don't miss this. We'll close with this. What the Bible is teaching those of us who know the Lord, first of all, is this. Don't expect to rest now. Our earthly existence as Christians isn't a time to rest or relax. The rest is coming when we get here. And the rest that he's talking about here is that full and final release. What's that mean? Here's what it means. We get to look forward to a day where there will be no more sin. Where we won't have to struggle with our fallen sin nature. And we don't even know what that feels like. Nor will we have to ever face any opposition against our belief and faith in God ever again. All our enemies will be defeated, including the Bible says death. Everything. Gone. We will truly be able to rest. So notice the contrast here in these two chapters tonight. You have the stability, the security, the substantiveness of the Lamb who stands on a rock, and you have the total lack of it by the dragon who stands on sand and everything that he offers. And then you have this great contrast between the beast worshipers who one day will have no rest throughout eternity and those of us who know the Lord who one day will be able to look forward to rest for all of eternity. That full and final release where we get our glorified bodies where there's no more sin nature to struggle with, no more opposition, no more death, nothing. Now, he does say this. He says our deeds or our works will follow us or accompany us into eternity. This doesn't mean that we work to get to heaven. What he's telling us is, oh, and don't forget, believer in Christ, that everything you've done for the Lord is going to tag along with you because God is going to reward you for your work. It's not our works that get us to heaven, but God is not going to forget the works that we do for Him. He's going to reward us for every one of them. In fact, the language here in the, in the Greek language literally means there's no way of escaping this. They're, they're going to tag along and accompany us. Whether we, you know, we, There's no choice in the matter. They're coming along. So the next time someone says to you, you can't take anything with you, say, well, not really. Bible tells me my good works are going to accompany me over there. And that again, our reward is an eternal reward. I know it's hard for us as human beings to wrap our heads around that whole forever thing. Just, it never ends. But folks, that's the way God created us. And whether we will admit it or not, every human being knows, knows that they're going to exist forever. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks from the book of Romans. The internal witness that God gives to every human being. And so what John is saying is, isn't it better to focus on eternal things 
and to live for eternity and to invest in eternity and to build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ who one day will stand on Mount Zion fulfilling prophecy because everything God says is going to be fulfilled and completed just as he says and it's trustworthy and it's reliable and it's dependable. This is why we can worship God. Because let's face it, all that we get to look forward to isn't because we were such great people. It's because of His grace. None of us deserve this. None of us deserve a a Savior who's willing to come down from heaven and to die for us when He was sinless. But He loves us that much that He's willing to offer it to us. I hope you've accepted it. I hope you've received it so that if something were to happen to you, and you were to die, you, like John, would die in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the assurances, the confirmation, the encouragement, the comfort that You and Your Word gives us. And we pray, God, that once again we have seen set in very stark relief the contrast between You, God, and what You offer us, and Satan and what he offers mankind. And God, I pray tonight that more than ever, we would be motivated and inspired to continue to build our lives on the rock. Yes, the storms will come as you promise. But even though they come, our house will stand, Jesus says. Because we built that house on a solid foundation. God, thank you for the stability, for the surety, for the the substance, for the security that only you can give a soul. And thank you for the assurance that you give us as well, deep within, for those of us who truly know you in a personal way, that if we were to die, even right now, we know we would die in the Lord and be with Jesus. For the Bible clearly teaches to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. See you on Easter Sunday.